Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. A widespread disruption in Hamilton being blamed on a cybersecurity incident. Also, housing versus parking, boycotting the LRT, waiting too long for bail, the Online Harms Act, and misconceptions about shingles. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. A cybersecurity incident was responsible for a widespread disruption to its systems. This is sadly among dozens of Canadian municipalities that have been hacked so far. Unfortunately for Hamilton, however, it now takes over the crown of the largest Canadian municipality to deal with a cybersecurity incident that we know of publicly. That's just great. Cybersecurity expert David Shipley on Hamilton Today yesterday. Now, this issue, as you probably already know, affecting everything from HSR app to emails to phone lines. Uh, The Hamilton Public Library website is impacted as well. And what's worrisome is that the city says there's no timeline for when these systems will return to normal. And maybe even more worrisome is what exactly was hacked. Terry Cutler is the CEO of Psyology Labs, an international award-winning cybersecurity expert, and also the author of the number one Amazon best-selling book, Insider Secrets to Internet Safety Advice from a Professional Hacker. Terry, good morning. How are you? Morning, Rick. Any better? And I couldn't handle it. Okay, well, that's that's a pretty good place to be. What is the likelihood that private or sensitive data was breached in this cybersecurity incident? There's a good chance it's highly likely. Here's why: the, a lot of people don't know this, but the average time that a cyber criminal is inside a network is 286 days. Okay, that's the average time that they're in your network before being detected. And during that time, they have so much time to figure out how your network works where your data is, copy it out. So this way, uh, when they launch the ransomware attack and encrypt all of your data, make it unusable. And let's say you're able to recover from a backup properly. Well, now they have a copy of your data. Now they can do a double extortion tactic on you where if you don't pay up, they're still going to uh, you know, release the data and cause fines and, and things like that. Shouldn't the city, the size of Hamilton, have an ironclad cybersecurity system? Look, here's the problem with most municipalities that we deal with. They don't have the time, money, or resources to deal with cybersecurity. And a lot of times you hear the comment, well, my IT guy has it covered. Think of IT as your family doctor, right? Would you ever ask your family doctor to perform laser eye surgery on you? And most people would say no. And this is where a cybersecurity firm or experts come in and complement the IT department. That makes a lot of sense. The city says its priority is to safeguard the integrity of the city's systems and protect any sensitive or private information. The question is, how long is that going to take? And are we already beyond the point of repair? And that's a pretty standard response, by the way, right? We, we take cybersecurity very seriously, but then, then why did you get breached? Uh, here's <laughs> the thing. There are so many ways to get into a network. And this is where the problem is. As defenders, we have to protect every single door and window. But the hackers need just one way in and it's over. So a lot of times they don't realize that um, they have their defenses are wide open because they don't do enough cybersecurity audits. One of the the tests we often do for municipalities is what's called a penetration test. It's where we get hired to legally hack into their systems, help them find all the holes before the bad guys do. And part of that assessment is what's called an attack surface report. An attack surface report means like we're going to look at what the hackers can see about your municipality publicly. And, And maybe we have exposed remote access systems that you forgot about three years ago. You know, we're going to see all this stuff and we're going to show you all the entry points that uh, uh, of how hackers can get into your environment. 
Terry Cutler is the CEO of Psyology Labs, an international award-winning cybersecurity expert, and also the author of the number one Amazon best-selling book, Insider Secrets to Internet Safety Advice from a Professional Hacker. We're talking about the cybersecurity incident at the city of Hamilton. It's affected a number of its systems, and you're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Terry, this is going to cost the city millions of dollars, isn't it? It is. And this is where this is where it gets uh, challenging because this may have been avoided had they done an audit that would have been like a fraction of that cost. I'll give you an example. You know, we've seen cases where, let's say they outsource their IT to a, to a managed service provider and that managed service provider gets hacked into and now they've got access to all of their clients, which might, which might be a municipality as well. But, you know, we've seen a case where 40 customers got ransomed in overnight in one shot. So... How do hackers get in? Is it usually through email? Is that the first point of entry? Yeah, that's the number one way. Here, a lot of folks think that, oh, I have a new firewall. I have, I have secure, uh, encryption. I have a new password. I'm safe. But hackers aren't wasting time trying to hack your firewall and get detected. I mean, why would they? When all they have to do is send an email to one of your employees who's, un, who's untrained and have them click on a link they're not supposed to. And now they become an insider to the, to the network. And when they're in there, they can they can see everything. They can get access to passwords, sensitive information, scan passports, digital signatures. You know, we've seen so many cases where you know money's being sent to a wrong location because they modified the bank uh, bank requisite form. Hmm. And in terms of the hackers, what's in it for them? Is they're they're in to make lots of money by selling this information? Oh yeah, they are making. I mean, some of these ransomware gangs are making ninety million dollars in three months. Wow. It's, it's, yeah, it's very, very lucrative. That is insane. Last question for you. You're a government cleared ethical hacker. What does that mean? Okay. So, so it means that we have like a, a government clearance uh, that we can work on certain types of projects on behalf of the government to, uh, to help thwart cyber criminals. And do you find most often than not that companies, cities are ill-equipped? They are very ill-equipped because um, they just don't have the time, money. The, the budget is a big problem. They don't have the proper tools. I'll give you an example. Let's say Ms. Uh, 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 Powell's budget is $10,000 before going to the next level. And some of these tools can be very expensive. And now they have to like do, go to a public bidding process, which could take weeks, months. And during that time, the hackers have this time, this window of time to, to attack the municipality. Hmm. So time is of the essence. Absolutely. Terry, we're out of time. I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's been a lot of noise about the housing parking debate in downtown Stony Creek. I'm really quite actually disappointed in how this is being framed, that this is affordable housing versus cars. It's not. How can our priority not lie with providing housing for people? We can't treat the city core like we do the outlying regions. People still drive cars in Stony Creek. We either have a city for people or we have a city for cars. And we know that successful, um, competitive cities are built for people. So yesterday's poll question of the day went absolutely berserk on our X feed, the text line, the email, so much so that I did not have enough time on the show yesterday to relay what everyone was saying. And I mean, that might still be the case today, especially if you do want to call in and, and the phone line is open at 905-645-3221 or star 9900 to give your thoughts on this debate. And yeah, right now it does apply to downtown Stony Creek, but this can be applied to other areas in the city. Dundas, Ancaster, Glambrook, Upper Stony Creek, On the Mountain, Lower City, you name it. 
it, this is going to open not necessarily a Pandora's box, but I think force or allow city council and the community as a whole to look at, well, what other municipal parking spaces, not just lots, parking lots, just spaces in general, should we be building homes on? And so yesterday in our poll question of the day, 73% of you were on the ho- were on the side of building some housing on these two municipal parking lots in downtown Stony Creek. 27% um, said, you know what, C- keep it as parking spaces. We need those two lots for the Royal Canadian Legion that's down there. There's a medical clinic down there. The businesses need those lots. And so here's my thought on this. If you build housing on these two lots, does that not bring more people to the businesses that are barking about losing these parking spots? Wouldn't you rather have a bigger customer base? And you probably think, well, where are they going to park? Well, there are, there are several parking options in that area. Those are not the only two lots in this area. There are literally 10, 12 other lots. Now, not right next to those buildings, but in the vicinity. Don't we want more homeowners in Hamilton to contribute to the city's bottom line as well? Spread out the tax implications? Those are my thoughts. And we have a housing crisis. So we need to build more homes. And I get the, I get the argument that there are other places in the city. And sure there are. And we've gone to other places in the city. And councillors or residents in those parts of the city have said, no, we don't want that here. So where are we going to build? Here's some of the things that you had to say on email and the text line. Email from Susan. Leave the parking lots. Andrea Horvath needs to think this through. There isn't enough street parking for all the restaurants, the Legion, the businesses, and the clinic on Mountain Street. And Susan, I took a look at the map yesterday. I think there's more than enough parking on street and other lots in the area. Just my opinion. Sam on the text line. Parking lots. They only have two lots and some street parking. Why can't we get this? Business must be preserved. Why must we work so hard to cripple those who pay the bills? Don't tell me there's no other space to build affordable housing. And Sam, yeah, there's, there's a lot of other space to build affordable housing. But again, there, there are more parking options down there. And think about it. If you're building more affordable housing units, 67, according to this project, that's at least 67 individuals We're going to be supporting the business in that area. Carl on the text line. Sadly, Rick, I am voting for parking. If the local economy is productive, we will have money for rentals. Eric says, better idea in Stony Creek. Bring back the bowling alley they tore down to make those parking lots. That's a thought, Eric. I kind of like that idea. Although probably not right there. Chris on the text line, 905-645-3221, as we discuss the housing versus parking debate here in Stony Creek. Chris says, good morning, Rick. Yes to housing. The denser, the better. Housing is most urgent right now, and people live in that housing. That would increase the customers to those businesses. Yes, some will go, but more will come. The one that drives over there uses one business. The one that lives there uses more. Chris, that's a good point. That's a very good point, actually. Here's a text in. Uh, I don't have a name. Where are these other parking lots you're talking about? I'm not aware. I've been attending blood work, ultrasound, and x-ray at this building for years. Well, I will direct the texter to Google, hit up the satellite layer, and you'll see 
uh, a dozen others in that area. Judy on the text line, how many people voting for affordable housing in the parking lots in Stony Creek, even though there are lots there? There will be no parking for those going to appointments at the medical building oil or the Royal Canadian Legion or small businesses. This is very limited street parking that is already well used. There are other areas that are available in Stony Creek that make way more sense. I'm signing the petition. On X, Brian says parking spaces over people's lives. The fact this poll even exists shows how selfish we've become as a society. Shelter is a basic human need. Without it, we die. We keep parking spaces for convenience. We are debating convenience over people being able to live. John says the people voting for affordable housing, let's take away city-owned parking lots from other areas of the city before we touch Stony Creek, Ancaster, etc. This is an issue with the old city of Hamilton. Jeremy says these responses make me cry and make me want to leave Stony Creek. You are all horrible people. Leah says these two lots are not even high-value parking lots. The high-value municipal lot would remain, so they aren't even losing that much parking. Worker of lead, or lead, on X. This should be worded, should councillors listen to the will of their constituents or get strong-armed by Bolshevik advocates, donor interest, and local media pressure, every institution in this city is rotten to the core. That is a hot take. And Don says, I support building affordable housing where people have said they are open to it. Maybe if the mayor forces it, the affordable units can go to veterans. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The organization representing local labor unions is calling for a boycott of Hamilton's LRT line if the city decides to support a model that is privately operated. The Hamilton District Labor Council says privatization of the LRT could result in job losses for the local transit union and lower quality transit service for riders. Here to talk about it is Anthony Marco. Anthony is the president of the Hamilton and District Labor Council. Anthony, welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton. How are you? Thanks for having me here, Rick. Why this potential boycott? Well, potential right now because the decision hasn't been made, quite frankly, and we expect that a decision will be made Uh, at the March 20th GIC meeting. It was supposed to have been made at the LRT subcommittee meeting last month. And uh, a halfway approach to half privatization and half public uh, was never allowed to come to a vote. It was referred to GIC. So we had to wait for another five to six weeks to find out what was going to happen on it. So the potential, that's why the word potential is in there. But the reality is that ATU 107, who are the transit workers, who you remember back about like a few months ago were on strike and they just signed a new collective agreement. They have within their collective agreement, a letter of agreement, which says that any fixed route transit within the city of Hamilton will be operated and maintained by ATU 107. Now, the argument that the city tries to make is, well, this is a Metrolinx project, not a city project, but the city is expected to sign off on it. So if they signed off on a collective agreement for ATU saying that they would be operating and maintaining any fixed route transit, and then they turn around and contract that out to a Metrolinx job with a different fixed route, you really have the city talking out of both sides of its mouth. And it's really, uh, it, it makes people skeptical when it comes to dealing with the city in the future. These are ATU jobs. They should be ATU jobs. And the LRT is supposed to be replacing the B line. And that's going to cause lost jobs along that route. So what does this potential boycott look like if it were to start tomorrow? If it was going to start tomorrow, say we had a privatized uh, LRT line come in tomorrow and they were going to run it as a private corporation. What we would suggest is this. The LRT is going to run like the B-Line. It is an express route which goes across the city. There are always going to be local routes that the HSR runs across the city. In other words, the King 1 is still going to go from 
Eastgate all the way downtown. And then you're going to be able to hop on. And before the beeline happened, people still got across the city. So there are going to be local routes that still have all the stops. What our boycott would just suggest is you keep taking the HSR, publicly funded transit with good union jobs there that represent pensions and benefits. And there where a collective agreement has been signed by the city, the city has made a commitment to those workers. And instead of supporting a private company uh, that could very well be breaking a lot of those rules, we're expecting the city to uphold them. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Anthony Marco, president of the Hamilton District Labor Council. We're talking about a potential boycott of Hamilton's LRT if... Once it's built, the city decides to support a private model as opposed to a public model. Um, any response from the city? Any response from Metrolinx to what you had to say? Uh, nothing yet. And we don't necessarily expect that that's going to happen. But what we do know is that if if coming up on, on March, in March 20th, I believe it is, the GIC meeting, if they decide to support a private model at that point, um, we know at the pace of this project, we got a lot of years to build this boycott up, Rick. <laughs> we probably got four to five years before the rubber hits the road on this. We've got uh, we've got stories like Eglinton. We've got stories like Ottawa with regards to LRT, where it's taken a long time to get those things going. So we know that we have the next se- several years to build up that boycott. And there is a huge historical precedence on this. It reaches back quite a ways. But back in 1906, a parallel experience happened. The city privatized out transit to a private contractor who was running electrical and transit across the city. And at the time, ATU and the Labor Council had a blue ribbon campaign which said, we'll walk instead. Now, we don't have to necessarily do the walking, but it shut effectively shut down that private operator. They sold it back to the city. And we had public transit once again ever since 1906. Is this about supporting local unions or, or providing the best service to the public? We believe that they go hand in hand. We believe that supporting local unions is providing the best service to the public, making sure that you have people who are well paid, have decent jobs, who are on that route, who actually care about people and who actually want to help people get across the city as as effectively and as conveniently as possible. And when you hear about the breakdowns that are happening in Ottawa right now, they were shut down for two months last year. And every month still had to pay $5 million for a maintenance contract to a private operator. You know, you hear the stories about how we outsource the 407 and there's a private company making tens of millions of dollars on that every single month. That's exactly what's going to happen here. Why do you think there are big companies clamoring to get in on this business? Because there is money to be made. Why shouldn't that money be made by the city of Hamilton? And why shouldn't it be reinvested into some of the needs that we have here municipally? First thing I thought when I saw this potential boycott email come down um, on the email was that, uh-oh, council's leaning towards the private model and the Hamilton and District Labor Council has, you know, gotten that, uh, that uh, those those uh, uh, whispers and now they're making this decision. Do you, do you have a gut feeling or have you heard anything about how council is going to go? Well, st- the staff recommendation right now, and it's been out there for about a month or so, the staff recommendation is that we privatize both operations and maintenance. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of councillors who are working to mitigate that to a certain degree by getting uh, still publicly operations, but still have some privatized maintenance. Part of the problem is the facts that that staff is basing it on are not completely true. Staff is telling the councillors that they've been directed by Metrolinx to do this in many cases. And if you ask Metrolinx what their procurement model is around this, they'll say, we don't even have a procurement policy on this yet. We haven't created one yet. And anything we've told city staff is just a recommendation. So 
Staff is right now saying we're going to mitigate risk by making it all privatized so we don't have to take on the responsibility. But that also means you're not taking on any of the potential rewards that come from it as well. So in other words, we're willing to lose the opportunity for tens of millions of dollars in order to let a private company make tens of millions of dollars on the same project. It's a good way to put it. Anthony, thanks for the time this morning. Thanks so much, Rick. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's a new report out that says the crisis in Canada's bail system has worsened over the last 10 years with more people in pre-trial custody and some spending weeks in detention before being released. This report from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association says that by 2021-22, the proportion of people in provincial and territorial jails who were awaiting bail or trial, was more than 70%. In Ontario, that number is 79%. And that compares with just over 54% 10 years ago. Nicole Myers is the co-author of the report and an associate professor of sociology at Queen's University and joins us now on GMH. Nicole, good morning. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me today. What is going on with our bail system? It's a it's a good question. I mean, the the difficulty, as you highlight with these proportions, is that despite all of the rhetoric of us having a lenient bail system of that we need to move forward with having jail, not bail, and we need to tighten things up, is factually inaccurate. We have a, a very punitive bail system in this country that is holding many people in custody prior to being found guilty. And for many, many people, they are never found guilty of the allegations. Part of the problem, too, is that we're short on court staff in general, judges as well. Absolutely. We have huge problems in our of delay and inefficiency in our court system. And you've probably heard this coming out in other ways of uh, of cases being uh, of collapsing, of, of cases not being able to proceed because there's not enough uh, staff um, and judicial officers to be able to hear the matters. And we see these problems also bearing out in bail court. And the difficulty then is, is that in a system that is incredibly overburdened, it is more and more difficult to deal with all of the matters that come in. This is one of the very important reasons why we need to think very carefully about who we bring in. Let's focus our limited resources and attention on those that are the most serious, those are the most risky, so that we can make a proper evaluation of if those are the folks that we do need to keep in custody. But all the more minor stuff, we need to be letting people out. We need to stop disrupting people's lives in the community, particularly at a time when we are they are to be presumed innocent. And this has a domino effect, too. I mean, if you have a, a, a number of individuals who are waiting on bail, you know, other people are getting arrested and now they're waiting a little bit longer and it's got to be costly. Absolutely, absolutely. If we, the, it's incredibly expensive to hold anybody in custody. If we think about all the resources of, of an institution, all of the policing resources, transporting people back to court, and then all of the resources that are involved in operating a court. Um, and if we think then about if we like, how do we use our our resources in the in the most smart way? Nobody, nobody here is saying that we're not interested in public safety or we should let absolutely everybody out. That's not the argument. The argument is we are simply bringing in far too many people and intervening and in really. Um, restrictive ways over folks, and it's not having the kind of payback in terms of public safety that people might imagine that it would. I want to get to some solutions in just a matter of seconds. We're with Nicole Myers, co-author of this report from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Nicole is also an associate professor of sociology at Queen's University, and you are listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Is there an average wait time? Is it days? Is it weeks? Is it longer? 
It's a little bit difficult to capture this because, of course, it varies across the country. But on average, you're looking at folks spending about a week across the country. Now, seven days may not sound like a a very long period of time to people. But you have to imagine that if you didn't show up to your job for seven days, if that job would still exist, who would look after kids, who would take care of your access to medication or other programmings that you're involved in. And so a very short period of time is incredibly disruptive to people's lives. And what we also have to be mindful is that even short periods in custody, a matter of days has a criminogenic effect. What that means is it makes people more likely to commit future offenses rather than less likely. So we want to be really restrained on how often we are holding people in custody and how long they are there. You said yesterday that many of the people waiting for bail are not subsequently found guilty. Is there is there um, a percentage? Yes, it is a little bit difficult because the the Having, you know, high quality systematic data across Canada is one of the challenges that we face. And it's something that I really do think we need to address. But we're looking at about little over half of all charges against an individual person are are withdrawn. So half of people have everything against them does not proceed. You are not found guilty. You are now free to go. You also said yesterday when people are released on bail, they often are under conditions that are difficult or impossible to meet. Um, Why is that? Well, we we have there. We're sort of working in a risk adverse environment. We are we're, we're trying to to protect public safety, which is incredibly important. But we're then imposing supervision and a variety of conditions of release. And once those conditions are imposed, it's a criminal offense to violate those conditions. But those conditions may be such things as not talking to family or friends, not accessing particular areas where you may need to access other types of services that one's involved with. And the other difficulty is is not only are you looking at an average of just under six different conditions being imposed. They're imposed for an uncertain and often lengthy period of time. On average, we're looking at cases taking more than four to five months to process through the system. And that's on on the lower end of folks. And so this is a very long time to be subject to all of these kinds of conditions on one's behavior, particularly when the outcome is for about half of folks that all of the charges against them are withdrawn. We've got about a minute to talk about some solutions. What, What should we do? Well, I think what we need to do is really sort of step back and think about how does we change the culture in our bail court, that this is a long-standing problem. There's nothing new about this. The the numbers, the rates, the uh, the proportions have only increased over time. And this is dep- despite decisions from the Supreme Court of Canada, despite new legislation that's trying to guide discretion. So what we really need here is to think about how it is we change our thought process around bail and think about w- ways that we might want to craft um, additional legislation that provides clear objectives and principles and, and guidance to those who are making very difficult decisions at very difficult times. And in terms of investing any further resources, we want to look at bail supervision programs and how it is we can best support people in the community rather than focusing so much on compliance and support. This is how we are going to best improve public safety. That's good food for thought. Nicole, thank you so much for breaking this down with us and spending some time with us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Enjoy the day. You too. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The government's Online Harms Act has been tabled, but what does it entail and and what does it mean for you? We've seen a wave of harm with with no legal accountability. So it's time. We need this type of legislation. David Fraser is a privacy lawyer and partner at McKinnis Cooper and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. David, good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Rick? I'm good. There's a lot of people saying that this act is long overdue. What do you think about it? Well, certainly it's been long in the process, and it's overdue 
strictly speaking, in the sense that the government promised it quite a long time ago. Uh, but I'm actually glad that they've taken some time. They introduced a discussion paper over two years ago that was deeply, deeply problematic, particularly when it comes to freedom of expression. They sent it to an expert consultation group. They put it through a whole process. And, and so we ended up with the result that was tabled in Parliament yesterday, which is not anywhere near as bad as I expected it to be doesn't mean that it's that it's perfect and checks all the boxes i think there's a lot of improvement that could be made to it but uh, but certainly you know on, online it's funny that, that there are very different conceptions in terms of what are online harms people think about misinformation this does nothing related to misinformation uh, but when it comes to things like child sexual abuse material often called child pornography it's addressed in this legislation, the non-consensual distribution of intimate images, and then uh, offenses particularly related to, to children or harm to children, related to bullying, those sorts of things, um, inducing a child to harm themselves or, or uh, suicide. That's a problem, and that's captured in this legislation, but it also deals with inciting violence, and, and inciting violence or, or terrorism is also dealt within this. So we need to be careful about what it is we're talking about, kind of what is in and, and what is out, uh, because very often when people are talking about this sort of this topic, they're thinking misinformation, which this doesn't really go after. Right. You said that it, it was not as bad as you expected it to be. What did you mean by that? Well, so the way that they originally proposed it, it was a pretty draconian requirement that all websites that offer, well, all communication service providers, not just uh, social media outfits. And it's been, this is limited only to social media companies. Uh, under the previous proposal, there was a pretty draconian takedown requirement related to 24 hours where uh, it related to a, a long list of types of content where the incentives were entirely in order to take it down immediately or face significant penalties with no real due process, no real review, nothing like that. So this scales it back. So there, there are generally two categories of content that need to be addressed within 24 hours. That's the child pornography uh, materials or uh, the non-consensual distribution of intimate images. And they've included deep fakes within that, which is important, but I think they've done a very poor job of defining what is a, what is a deep fake but that sort of content and that's generally seen as beyond the pale that needs to be addressed very quickly the default is going to be the removal the way it's written it's going to result in the over removal uh, and all of which raises freedom of expression concerns all this needs to be very carefully considered on its face it does violate the freedom of expression right under our charter under section 2b uh, but within our canadian legal system those violations can be justified and can be allowed to stand if they're what's called demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society as, as appropriate and necessary. That makes sense. We're talking about the government's Online Harms Act with David Fraser. David is a privacy lawyer and, and partner at McInnes Cooper, and you're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Um, I, I've read that fines are up to $25 million, <laughs> and, and some critics are saying, you know, this is probably going to convince um, companies like X and Meta to say goodbye to Canada, which to me sounds unlikely. That's certainly something that needs to be taken into account because all of these companies, they're, they're in business. And if the risk of doing business or the cost of doing business is disproportionate to the benefit that they get from it, we saw that with, with Meta and Facebook and Instagram with respect to news content. They determined that the, that the cost to provide news content or to host links to news content uh, was higher than the, than the benefit they received. And so they've, they've withdrawn that. So we always need to be very careful at, uh, about that. 
but you know, one thing that I that I note, uh, having worked with large internet companies, is that, for example, one of the requirements relates to having a um, duty to act responsibly with with mitigation measures. Well, the large companies already do that. the The sort of content that needs to be taken down rapidly. They tend to do that. They're responsible operators, and and they they have over the last number of years, over many years, have developed community standards and and trust and safety teams within their organizations. Um, and so, I think in a lot of cases, they will be equipped to do this in the big picture sense. The devil's going to be in the details because that digital safety plan that they have to have has to conform to what's in the regulations and has to be approved essentially by a new digital safety commissioner who's part of a whole new regulatory bureaucracy that this creates. And so if that doesn't align with or fit with or work with the the, the models that they've currently using, they're going to have to think about what's the cost of modifying all these massive and, and involved systems in order to uh, satisfy the Digital Safety Commissioner and the Minister of Justice. That is a great point. We, ha- we have one minute left. Is there going to be a time component to this, i.e., we saw, you know, deepfake Taylor Swift um, uh, video on X, and we know that X and Elon Musk removed a lot of his, uh, you know, monitors, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Is there a time component to when that stuff has to be taken down before fines come into play? Well, that stuff has to be taken down within 24 hours, and then there's a process during which the the creator of it can be consulted in order to determine whether it fits the definition. The problem is that the definition is really very low. All you have to do is have a reasonable ground to suspect that the person didn't consent to that communication, um, which reasonable grounds to suspect is very, very low. And if you have reasonable grounds to believe that there's reasonable grounds to suspect, so that puts the bar all the way down in the basement, then it has to be removed. And if it's not, then they could be open to those significant penalties. The The massive $20 million penalty is is more of an offense rather than a regulatory uh, penalty. The administrative monetary penalties are generally going to be lower, but they're still extremely, extremely high. Without, in my view, adequate due process to properly manage it. For example, there's a tribunal or the digital safety commissioner. Uh, the the can consider any evidence without any regard to the rules of evidence, which that's pretty significant when it comes to the potential imposition of, of penalties of that magnitude. Interesting stuff, David. Thanks for breaking it down with us this morning. My pleasure. You take care. You as well. David Fraser is a privacy lawyer and partner at McKinnis Cooper talking about the Online Harms Act. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What is the state of shingles in Hamilton? I'm not talking about the status of your roof, but the viral infection. Are cases rising in this city and across Ontario? Now, most people get shingles in their 50s or later in life. So is the 50 plus crowd getting vaccinated. Dr. Zane Chagla is an infectious disease specialist at St. Joseph's Hospital and associate professor in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Chagla, good morning. How are you? Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the basics. What is shingles? So uh, everyone remembers chickenpox, the the virus many people dealt with as a child. Um, When people get chickenpox, they get the rash, you know, from head to toe. It goes away generally and, and leaves people typically without complications. But what we don't realize is that the virus that causes chickenpox actually never leaves our body. It hides itself in some of our nerve cells and stays there for for quite some time. Now, in individuals, if they get older, if they have medical stress, if they have other stresses, they become immune compromised, 
our body loses the ability to control that chickenpox virus that's lying in our nerve cells. And all of a sudden, we get a local recurrence of chickenpox, which we call shingles. And so that gives us a area with the same kind of rash, painful, burning, usually along where that nerve traverses, so on one side of the body. Um, and that can lead to not only, you know, the having a, an infection and the, the pain from that, but the more we're realizing is, is shingles in, in older individuals can also be associated, associated with an increased risk of stroke, an increased risk of heart attack, as well as, you know, having significant pain that might not diminish after the infection settles down. So for someone who had chickenpox as a child, per se, they are at greater risk of getting shingles later on in life? Yeah, absolutely. So we know most shingles cases, are about 65% are in over the age of 50. Um, interestingly, we are seeing more shingles in people under the age of 50. So, you know, uh, uh, at least a third of the cases are in people that, you know, typically weren't the typical population we saw a decade ago. Um, and, uh, and, you know, certainly we see people who are becoming immune compromised for whatever medical reason, uh, being at very high risk of developing shingles because again, that protective immunity that keeps the, the chickenpox virus in our, our nerve cells. Um, comes down. And, and that's usually one of the first infections that may show up afterwards. So what do shingles do in your body? Is it, is it pain? Is it a rash? Like, what does it look like? So uh, again, the, the virus wakes up along that nerve. It, it travels along that nerve and it travels along the skin above that nerve. And so you see kind of a strip of uh, bumps or, or blisters, basically, that form very similar to the original chicken pox. Because the nerve gets so irritated as shingles comes out of the body, um, you get a really significant pain associated. It feels like that pins and needles, burning, lightning pain, often when you fall asleep on your hand and it wakes up. Um, imagine that kind of for a couple of days ongoing. Huh. And then again, because the body responds to it, tries to get it under control, there's a lot of inflammation. And that inflammation can lead to other complications like, uh, you know, unfortunately, heart attacks and strokes, as well as um, just making people generally feel unwell. So what's the treatment for shingles? So there are antivirals available. Um, these are antivirals we use. They have to be given very early for them to be effective. So within about 48 to 72 hours of the rash first showing up. Um, and, uh, and, you know, certainly when you use them, it isn't, you know, doesn't wipe it out completely, but it does um, arrest the progression and, and uh, um, allows people to recover a little bit faster. That being said, it doesn't stop the infection from starting. It really just speeds up the recovery a little bit more. When it comes to the vaccination, I understand that not everyone is covered by this. Yeah, so we, uh, we have a, a, an incredibly effective shingles vaccine on the market. So uh, studies, randomized clinical trials uh, in, in over 50-year-olds showed well higher than 90% protection against getting uh, shingles over 10 years. So really, really impressive. Um, the vaccine is indicated for anyone over the age of 50, as well as anyone that's immune compromised at higher risk. The vaccine currently is funded in Ontario for those between the ages of 65 and 70 only. And, and it is a little bit disappointing because we know that a 71-year-old, a 72-year-old, and a 73-year-old have an increased risk of shingles as they get older in life. Um, but, you know, the, the decision-making from the province was to really limit it to that five-year age group to get access to the vaccine that was publicly funded. Hmm. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. Zane Chagla, Infectious Disease Specialist at St. Joe's and Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. We've got about a minute left. 
Um, we know that society has grown tired of vaccinations with the pandemic. Is there a fear that people are going to say, yeah, you know what, I'm not going to get this? You know, it's interesting. When you look at people's acceptance of vaccines, I think obviously in the media, they're very polarized. You know, there's a study that showed that you know, people were 30% more likely to get a flu vaccine after the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think there is, you know, a, an opportunity and people are certainly seeking out more vaccinations as the respiratory season comes, there's more public messaging. I think for everyone out there, you know, the, the question when they go to the provider isn't, you know, should I get the flu shot this year? Is it, am I up to date with vaccines? There's a lot of vaccines available for older adults and some of them that are protective for respiratory season, other issues like herpes zoster or shingles. Um, but it's an important conversation to have, not just can, should I get this vaccine, but am I really up to date? And, and I think that's realistically the way we are moving forward. Dr. Chagall, appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for joining us. No problem. All the best. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.